Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I got to talk to Bishop Keith Cowart and Bishop Linda Adams. Both are bishops of the Free Methodist Church USA. Both oversee sections of the U.S. and Bishop Cowart, along with that, oversees Europe and the Middle East, while Bishop Adams oversees the Northern U.S. and Latin America. Dr. Keith Cower is a graduate of Georgia Southern University and Asbury Seminary for the MDiv and DMIN degrees. He and his wife, Pam, who is also a graduate of the seminary, have two adult sons. In 1997, Keith planted Christ Community Church in Columbus, Georgia, where he served for 21 years as lead pastor. Christ Community planted or played a major role in planting four other churches and sent out more than 35 men and women to serve as pastors, parachurch ministry directors, military chaplains, or missionaries around the world. Dr. Linda Adams is a graduate of Spring Arbor University and Asbury Theological Seminary for the MDiv and DMIN degrees. She has enjoyed serving in three pastoral appointments in Spring Arbor, Michigan, St. Charles, Illinois, and is lead pastor of New Hope Church in Rochester, New York. During her 10 years at New Hope, the church incorporated more than 30 refugees from Central Africa into the congregation, opening her eyes to the reality of global poverty and the migration of people because of war and ethnic strife. For 11 years, she then served as Director of International Child Care Ministries, a vibrant global free Methodist movement movement that is in 33 countries. Linda and her husband John have been married for nearly 45 years. Both Bishop Keith and Bishop Linda were elected as bishops of the Free Methodist Church USA in 2019. In today's conversation, we talk about their calling, their time at Asbury Seminary, and how God led them along the journey to become Bishop of the Free Methodist Church, and a little bit about what the future of the Free Methodist Church looks like. Let's listen. All right, Bishop Linda, Bishop Keith, I am so glad that we could find the time to talk today. It really is. I've been looking forward to it, and I'm glad that we could make it happen. Thank you for being here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as we get started, if you each could take a moment to introduce yourself and then tell us just a little bit about about yourself. We could start with you, Bishop Keith. Yeah, I am, um, I am from Georgia, live in Columbus, Georgia, married to Pam, who's also an Asbury grad, by the way. Um, and Pam and I have two kids, uh, two sons, Andrew and Aaron, and our youngest is now married and has given us two grandchildren and now a foster grandchild. Wow. And that has been the best thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, yeah, our, that's our family background. Um, we, uh, Pam and I were both here in the MDiv program back in the late 80s, graduated in 91. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know each other. And ended up meeting each other two years later and getting married. And uh, then we were back here for the Beeson Pastor Program in 96, 97. Okay. Wow. So uh, quite a history with the seminary. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Bishop Linda, what about you? Yes. Um, well, I'm uh, Linda Adams, and I'm married to John Adams. You can remember that presidential name, right? And <laughs> we live in Holland, Michigan, and um, the area of the country that I oversee is in the northern part. And so... Michigan is actually where I was born, and so it's been kind of nice to move back there, and I'm near siblings and, and uh, nieces and nephews and all that. 
Um, we also have two kids. Uh, they're not kids anymore. Nathan and Carrie are both in their 30s, and uh, we don't get to see them too often. Nathan lives in Virginia, and Carrie lives in D.C., but as often as possible, it's mm-hmm. great to see them again. Yeah. And I was here um, 89 to 91, finishing up an MDiv. I actually started it somewhere else. We lived in New York City before I came here. And then, um, so I graduated in 91 at the same time Keith did. And then he recommended the BSIN program to me. So uh-huh. I came a year later in 97, 98 and graduated with a DMIN in 2000. Well, she recommended Pam to me. <laughs> so we got to go back. <laughs> she, so knew, she knew Pam and I knew her. So uh-huh. she knew both of us. And one day she said, I think there's something about you and Pam. And <laughs> two years later, we re met and uh, started dating long distance and uh, married. Oh, I love Isn't that. that. Crazy. I love so that. So nobody would have guessed that when we were both elected bishop on the same day. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you both have pastoral experience prior to being bishop and experience doing lots of other things mm-hmm. too. So how did you experience your call to ministry? And then I'll, I'll ask my next question. I won't ask two questions together. Okay. How did you experience your call to ministry? Well, I was 17 years old and I lived in Spring Arbor, Michigan. And our church had gone through a really powerful revival that had started actually two years before that and had really come to life Um, And so there was a missionary, a retired missionary, Alice Taylor, who preached, and I just felt the Lord calling me to ministry. But at that time, I had never met a woman pastor, didn't quite know what it really meant. And in fact, our denomination didn't even fully ordain women until two years later. So, um, but as I was walking forward to just kind of commit my life to Christ in whatever way, it was like signing a blank check. Mm -hmm. But my categories in my head were, okay, maybe I'm going to be a pastor's wife or a missionary, or a Bible school teacher, Mm because those were my categories for women who were called to ministry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then I took about 12 years, honestly, to verify and clarify what that call meant. And when I was in college, I came across um, some students, not really the professors where I was, but the students, who said, no, 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 God doesn't want women to lead in the church. And so I read a lot of stuff on both sides of that and went back to my Bible and spent some time and then... um, So then John and I got involved in um, being a part of a church plant team, which was a chance to kind of use my gifts, get my toes wet in ministry, and experience more of what happens when you exercise your gift. And and the Lord was smiling on it, and and I was realizing, oh, this is a, a good place for me. And so it finally confirmed that after 12 years of sorting it out, when I was 29 years old, the Lord just spoke really clearly. Mm-hmm. Verbally and with a vision and everything else, so I could stop doubting him mm-hmm. <laughs> and then moved on to seminary. Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate the 12 years that it took you because I I feel like just in my life and in people's lives in general, at least I know for me, I want the microwave, like, I know this is right, <laughs> but it just takes time. Mm-hmm. And I just really appreciate hearing that as part yeah. of your story. Yeah. And another thing, you know, those were not wasted years right. at all. Right. I had two children during that time, and I spent mm-hmm. a good amount of my time caring for them. Yeah. You know, so it was um, it was all unfolding in the right time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I was, I was 21, and mine's very different in a sense that, I, uh, I was a believer. I'd been involved in a uh, music ministry all through college. Definitely wanted to serve the Lord, but was absolutely convinced it would not be as a pastor. 
as a as a clergy period of any kind because uh, it was and it was honestly based in two things. One, I, I really, really did believe that I could serve the Lord more effectively in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, my I guess my thought was um, pastors have to be good. And I want to be a business person who really loves Jesus and right. impact people in the business. And I still think that's an incredible, right. that's a, that's wonderful a, yeah, calling. Yeah, that's a fair thought. Problem is, the Lord was saying to me, that's that's not what I've called you to do. Mm-hmm. The other side of it was total, 100% inadequacy. Um, I absolutely could not conceive of being a pastor, particularly around preaching. Because I was, I had never taken a speech class in high school or college. I opted out of both because I was scared to death to speak in front of people. <laughs> and so I was just like, Lord, how can I be a, how can I be a pastor when I cannot speak in front mm. of people? Moses asked that question. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and the Lord essentially said the same thing. I'll be with you. Yeah, it was his answer. Um, but and, and like Linda, I think maybe because of that, those huge doubts and, and sense of inadequacy, the Lord had to speak very, very clearly to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a mystical, right, you know, I mean, if it was not an audible voice, it sure sounded like it to me. Mm-hmm. And the Lord was as clear as a bell that I'm calling you to this. Mm-hmm. And then it just simply became a matter of, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you in this. Mm-hmm. But I had planned, I'd already made plans to go into business with my dad Right out of college, I had a business degree, and mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and the Lord just made it very clear that He was calling me to something different. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, um, not being in the same field that you all are in, but just to know have a moment where you know. Mm-hmm. So, how has that moment then sustained you for the next, well, for the rest of your ministry? Then you know, because oh, yeah. things got would get hard, I would yes. imagine, or. You would have, again, moments of, I know if you're me, I'm like, okay, you said this, and so I'm going to do this, but but now I'm not sure again, so can you reconfirm that? But having such a clear time for both of you, how did that sustain you? You know, it really, it was the turning point, because um, I don't feel like I'm necessarily somebody who's going to try to be a trendsetter or break barriers or any of that stuff. I wasn't motivated to prove anything. I was happy to, you know, be a volunteer at the church and be a mom and a wife and just take care of life. And and I remember right before the Lord clarified my calling that I really was intended to um, go to seminary and take the steps that actually turned out to be a pastor. I wasn't quite sure even when I started seminary what that would be. I remember standing at the kitchen sink and saying, Lord, I'm never going to ask you again if you want me to go. I don't need anybody to ordain me. You've already ordained me. I'm I'm your servant, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to please you and serve you every single day. And Brother Lawrence never left the kitchen. So <laughs> if I'm going to serve right. you in the kitchen and working with a bunch of squirrely junior high kids in my youth group, I'll be happy. That's fine. I'm not going to ask this question anymore. And part of that was because some people that I really respect and some authors and Christian speakers and so on, had the opposite position and, and felt like it would be an act of rebellion for a woman to move on toward leadership in the church. And mm-hmm. and I, I didn't want to be in rebellion against God. Mm-hmm. But after such clarity in uh, in that in 1984 when he clarified mm-hmm. my calling, from then on, there was just no looking back and there was no doubting. It, I mean, he spoke. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I finally knew that it would be an act of rebellion to say no, oh. not to say yes. Mm-hmm. And I also began to think, you know, I'm not going to get to heaven and say, well, I didn't do what you asked me to do because he didn't approve of it. You know what? It's no longer anybody else's opinion that matters because I know your opinion, Lord, and I'm just going to follow you and right. submit to you. And this is not rebellion. This is submission. Right. So once I crossed that, never look back. Right. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah, and I'd say for me, you know, the, the the sense that God was calling me to be a pastor came over a period of two to three months that just were, it was more vague and it, but it became more and more real. But there was a point that the part that I met when I said that he spoke was about a year after really sensing that he was calling me. And I was still just kicking hard against, uh-huh. Lord, I just can't do this. And there was an evening where he just spoke clearly as a bell and the words were in essence john 15 5 and the words that he said to me is keith if you will simply obey me and always depend on me i will always give you everything you need mm-hmm. and if you don't you'll you'll fail uh, apart from me you can do nothing I, I didn't really even recognize it as john 15 in the moment and later on i realized he just spoke in a very personal way, John 15, 5. And so it, it became immediately a life verse. And that verse and that, and that word has sustained me all these years. It was mm-hmm. just this absolute promise of God that mm-hmm. he, and you're right, it does. It's, it's, it's always there. And there are days where I'm more sure of that than I'm, that, than I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know, I'm absolutely yeah. confident that God is, is faithful. And I'll say one other thing. Because I didn't aspire to it, because it wasn't something I was wanting and going right. after, that sense of obedience that you said has is, is also given me a strength to say, I'm not here trying to please people. Right. I can make decisions and if they're not popular, it's okay because I didn't want to do this in the first place. <laughs> it's like, okay, Lord, I, I didn't want to be this. And right. so I, I feel like it has given me the ability to lead with more boldness than I would have had naturally. Right. Because there was this clear sense of, Lord, I am, I am truly obeying you right. in this calling. Right. No, I think that's an important distinction because I was talking to somebody else uh, this morning just in a conversation about um, achievement in mm-hmm. ministry. And so n- when you're like, I didn't want to do this anyway, and you're having that clear moment of like, this is what I'm supposed to do, and literally nothing else matters. It's it's not about the titles or the, right. the anything, right. you know, yeah. or accomplishing. I mean, you definitely do want to accomplish goals. I'm not mm-hmm. minimizing that, but it's not it's not about adding this after your name or like That's a right. list of things yeah. under your name or whatever. Yeah. 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 In fact, I was still <clears throat> kind of timid about leadership. Yeah. And so, and I <clears throat> was a little bit, I'd say, stuck in some stereotypical roles about, you know, so even after the clarity that this is what I'm supposed to do, I can still remember um, the first time the pastor of the church plant asked me if I would preach, and I said, well, I don't know. You know, I haven't gone to seminary yet. I don't know if I preach. So he said, okay, we'll do it on Sunday night. 
we'll meet in the parlor and everybody will sit in chairs and you can pretend it's a big Bible study. How about that? <laughs> it's like, okay, I can do that. Yeah, That's no yeah. problem. And so it was kind of inch by inch, get my toes wet and more and more. But then I remembered, you know, the movie Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in the balcony with a bunch of junior high, inner city junior high kids who could not care less about that movie. They were paying no attention, throwing popcorn, whatever, whatever. And I'm sitting there. And when Eric Little gets to the part where he says, well, you know, his sister says, you need to be a missionary and, he said, and stop being a, a runner and go into the Olympics. And he said, all I know is that God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I just started to weep. Mm-hmm. I said, when I use these gifts, I feel his pleasure. When I preach, mm-hmm. I feel his pleasure. Yeah. When, I, when I lead one of these teenagers to Christ, I feel his pleasure. And so the kids are all looking at me like... <laughs> What's up with you? Because you know, that was a slow-paced, boring movie for them. But I was there for me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was a divine moment. It was a divine moment. Yeah. yeah. So then how did each of you come to the seminary? I, um, I had no idea what what to do as far as seminary is concerned. And I, uh, I first spoke to an evangelist um, that... Had t- he didn't come to Asbury, but when I I just met with him, I said I'm sensing this call to ministry. I think I should probably go to school. Where should I go? He immediately said Asbury Seminary. Um, it was Mark Rutland actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was back in 1985 or six or something like that. Uh, and then I I worked under a mentor in another denomination than Free Methodist, not the one we're in, the one not the one I'm in now. And he also didn't go to Asbury, but he said, I really think you ought to go to Asbury Seminary. He says, I don't think you can find a better seminary education. Uh, And so I had two different people who did not go to Asbury who really told me, (laughs) you need to go to Asbury. That's funny. (laughs) So um, mine was kind of a circuitous route, too. so my husband was working for the New York Bible Society. First, we were living in North Jersey, right outside New York City, and then we were living in New York City. And like I said, I had two young children. And mm-hmm. at first, when the call came, I just had one, and then a second one came along. And so I started out going to seminary part-time and evenings um, at Alliance Seminary in Nyack, mm-hmm. New York. And sometimes I would take, I took 17 credits worth of urban ministry classes in the city, and then I would actually commute from Midtown Manhattan up to Nyack and take courses. And I did that for four years, and I got about a, about halfway through the MDiv. And then two things happened. Um, I have a friend, Doug Cross, who's a free Methodist pastor, who had mm-hmm. come here. And he said, oh, Linda, you gotta go. you got to just do one year at Asbury. There's just nothing like it. you got to go to Asbury. And I was like, I can't. <laughs> I, I live here in New York City, and my husband has a job at the New York Bible Society. Well, then there was a women in ministry chapel. So I'm one of the weird people who actually preached in chapel here before I was a student. Really? I didn't <laughs> so know I that. Came and preached, got to see the place. So you had definitely moved from the lobby and the Bible study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, For but sure. it was not, it was not, uh, I didn't preach a lot before that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to insert a funny story there, though. Because okay. really the first time I preached on a Sunday morning in a pulpit, mm-hmm. I was um, filling in for a friend of my husband's who was on vacation. So the delegate or lay leader of the church was supposed to introduce me. I was 22 years old. 
and um, he didn't believe in women in ministry. So when he introduced me, he said, well, if God can speak through Balaam's ass, I guess he can speak through today's preacher. No, he didn't. <laughs> Look at your face. Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. And my face was like yours, but I didn't have a smart aleck comeback for him. I just stood up and preached like nobody just said that. <laughs> oh my goodness. So anyway. What an introduction. <laughs> what an introduction. Yeah, it was unforgettable. I'm un you know, everything's funny eventually. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, back to that. Um, I came here and, and I preached. I remember I preached from Matthew 9 about the flocks that were um, hurting and helpless and needing a shepherd. And it was a call to urban ministry. And then I went into the little chapel that's next to Estes. Oh, yes. And I just knelt down there to pray and to thank the Lord for helping me with the sermon, answering my prayer that I could get through it. <laughs> and um, the Lord spoke to me. He doesn't often speak English sentences into my ear, but not, not audibly, but very clearly. He said, mm -hmm. come here for your healing. Mm. And once again, I said, I, I can't do that. Right. John works at the Bible Society. <laughs> and, you know, but as it worked out, in fact, that was the Lord's voice. And my good husband came with me to seminary. And there were some aspects in our life that definitely needed some healing. We went through some counseling, and this was a place of healing for us. Mm -hmm. And so it was grace all the way. So it was kind of a weird route into seminary, preaching there first and then <laughs> showing up as a student. But So then I finished up my MDiv here. We were here for two years okay. for that. Wow. So what I'm, I'm curious about, because you both have heard from God in really powerful ways, and so I'm curious about, the type of relationship that you had with him, that you continued to build with him, that you had such a relationship that you knew when he was speaking to you. Yeah. Like, how did you build that at such very young ages? Hmm. You know, I, I grew up in a town of 1,500, in a county that only had 6,000. There were more cows in our county than people. I'm with farm. you. <laughs> But we had this little Methodist church that typically, you know, little churches don't get the, uh, the top-tier pastors. They, we tended to get retiree, people close to retirement, or right out of seminary. Um, and it seemed that more often than not, we had pastors who were not in it for the career. They were really in it because they loved Jesus. So I hear people all the time saying, I sat in church for 15, 20 years and never heard the gospel. I heard the gospel very early. I responded to it very early. And then I had parents that loved Jesus. And I think about Timothy, uh, Paul's words to Timothy, I first saw your faith in your grandmother and your mother. It, my grandmother had a huge impact on me. My, my parents lived the Christian life uh, very openly and clearly. And then I had adults that worked, volunteers, you know, they weren't trained youth workers. They were mm -hmm. parents who agreed to work with the youth. And they just absolutely taught us the word and expected that we were going to live it. Um, and so very early on, I began to get into the word. Mm -hmm. uh, and I will say, too, I had an experience with the Holy Spirit when I was 16, where I really came to a place of recognizing that, that, that there was something that seemed to be missing, that I wanted more mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit, I wanted more of God's presence. Mm -hmm. 
And I, there was a point of radical surrender that really did change the trajectory of my walk. Um, prayers became much richer, deeper. The Word came alive. And there was something very deep that happened that um, transformed my life. Mm-hmm. And it was real mm-hmm. as a teenager. Yeah. So you had it modeled for you how to build that relationship. Mm-hmm. So in this answer, we're a little bit similar. Um, so I also had Christian grandparents and parents, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad worked at Spring Arbor College, now oh, okay. university, mm-hmm. and so we grew up in that community, and in fact, the college and the church were so much, I mean, it was like extended family. The faculty kids were my cousins, yes. you know, it was yes. just the way it was, and grew up in that. But in, in, in 1970, the Asbury College revival spilled over to Spring Arbor, and okay. so I was a part of a youth group that was truly turned right side up, mm-hmm. um, and um, came alive to, I mean, the, the living presence of God, the manifest presence of God just mm-hmm. changes you. And so encountering God in that revival, and I mentioned that I was called to ministry when I was 17, but for that whole two years, we were meeting at the church about every day. Mm-hmm. And the teenagers were coming to the church first thing in the morning for prayer before we got on the school bus. We were wow. praying to lead our classmates to Jesus. Wow. So that was, yeah, we had come alive to God, and, and, and yeah. our life together was mm-hmm. quite remarkable. And it just changed, it, I mean, it made God real. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't I don't often, you know, I talk about hearing God's voice. You know, it's always a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. And there are times when I've begged him to hear a clear answer to something and I don't hear anything. Right. He does say in John 10, my sheep know my voice mm-hmm. and they follow me. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that's part of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to communicate, not usually verbally, but, you know, to reassure to nudge and prod, to convict of sin, to draw us further up and further in, to do these amazing things that other people without faith would call coincidences. Mm-hmm. And we see how, my goodness, look at how the Lord brought this together at just this right time. Mm-hmm. And you just have a sense. You know, there's another sense. Um, the Old Testament, uh, it's probably a psalm, sorry, that says um, the steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense which you can't even necessarily experience it in the moment. You look behind yourself and realize, For sure. oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. I was on that path and I was supposed to yeah. turn here and I turned here. Yeah. And so there's, to me, it's it's this mere mysterious sense of sometimes just walking purely by faith and not by sight and not having any sort of internal uh, GPS that I'm aware of, you know. And then just other times, and, and I would have to say, this is what we know one of the benefits of being filled with the Spirit is, is first thing in the morning I wake up with a song in my mind. And it's a different song every day almost. And it's mm-hmm. like a moment of fellowship and it feels like a message from God. Now you can say I'm being naive and silly about that, but it's like, Lord, I want you to be my first waking thought and my last waking yeah. thought. Mm-hmm. It's communion. Mm-hmm. And so um, he doesn't often speak, but I feel like in times when I absolutely have to know something, there's mm-hmm. a lot on the line. Mm-hmm. So when I left pastoral ministry to become the director of international child care ministries, mm-hmm. he spoke. And when I was deciding whether to in, to let my name stand for bishop, which I didn't really want to leave my job at international child care ministries, it was the best job in the world. <laughs> yes. And it was like, oh, Lord, do I have to? Yeah. But, yes, he spoke. And so at particular junctures along the way, it feels like he's he's making sure that I won't miss the path. Yeah. Yeah, he's good at that. 
So after seminary, you've hinted a little bit at what happened next for you, pastoral ministry and international child care ministries. And you can say more about that, too, because mm-hmm. that was really just a nutshell. But what happened next for each of you? So I left here and uh, went to a small rural church in uh, central Georgia. Was there for about a year and a half. Um, that's a long story. Uh, I don't have time to go into all of that, except to say that first year and a half ran into uh, uh, the first the first occasion uh, right out of the bat where I ran up against a non-negotiable where it had to do with race. I was trying mm-hmm. to reach some kids. Some of them were not white. And the church just said, absolutely, we don't want them on our property. And I said, then I can't be your pastor. I, you know, and I was, I was young, but it was just one of those non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. And, and I, we met, we tried to reason together. I tried to help them understand. And they were nice to me and they appreciated me, but they said, we are not going there. Wow. And I said, I really can't be your pastor. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up going to a, a larger church on staff mm-hmm. uh, for about four years. That's when Pam and I met, married. And um, so I had four years on staff of this large church. And then we uh, uh, applied for the Beeson program. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up back here in the Beeson pastor program. And I'll have to say that was, I mean, my MDiv was absolutely critical to my, to laying a, a strong foundation, mm-hmm. give me a conceptual framework out of which I live every day. Um, but I'll say it, the, the D-Men was a little different in terms of its quality because I was now in classes where we're talking about theology or the practice of ministry and I've got five years of experience right, in the field. Right. And I'm interacting, engaging with the professor and the material at a completely different level. And I would say it was the absolute best educational experience of my life. Um, and it really set us up for the next season right. coming out of, uh, right. out of that side, yeah. D-Men. And tell us about the next season, because it's pretty exciting. Well, yeah, okay. Well, So uh, we felt strongly called during the Beeson program to, uh, to plant. Um, and again, that was not something, I did not come into uh, the Beeson program thinking I was a church planter. Mm-hmm. And I still didn't feel like a church planter. I mean, <laughs> it's been a theme of my life. The Lord always calls me to things that I'm like, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah um, he's good at that, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And... Um, so I, I, you know, I was like, I've never, I hadn't been through a church planting uh, boot camp or school or anything like that. But for us, it was the Lord gave us a very clear vision of the kind of church we wanted to to lead and be mm-hmm. a part of. Mm-hmm. And I just felt the best way to do it was to start it from ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I won't go into this long story, but we had to change denominations to do that. That's mm-hmm. when I became a Free Methodist. Okay. And uh, so I joined the Free Methodist Church, planted Christ Community Church in Columbus, Georgia, mm-hmm. that we then pastored for 21 years. Yeah. And uh, that's really awesome. Absolutely loved every minute of it. Yeah. So, as a church planner, and I want to come back to you because I know this value is important to both of you, mm-hmm. but um, the value of racial reconciliation. And so, as, as white individuals, how do, you, how do you foster that reconciliation? 
yeah. when in these instances, none of us are, in quotes, the other, you right. know, to see things from a different perspective than, right. than ours. Yeah, I would just say for us, um, one of the most important thing is that we identified it as a core value mm-hmm. from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it was, you know, just being candid here, it was a, it was six people in a living room mm-hmm. initially, all white, and and yet we all agreed we want to be a church that helps break down those barriers. Mm-hmm. And so from the very beginning, we identified it as one of our core values. We mm-hmm. prayed for it. We uh, did outreach that targeted a diverse community. So we were very intentional about trying to live that value out. But I'll say even in spite of that, uh, it happened very, very slowly. Um, and uh, in fact, I'd say it was prayer that really led to the initial breakthrough. Mm-hmm. We had been in a week of prayer. All week long we'd been praying. Is It was part of our pattern early in the year. And one of the things we were praying about is, Lord, we, we've named this as a value, but we hadn't seen breakthrough. Right. And we said, please give us some breakthrough. And it was just such an incredible thing that within weeks, we began to have n- numerous people, uh, African-Americans, who came into our congregation. We, we said, how did you hear about our church? They said, I drove by here, and the Lord said, I want you to go to that church. Wow. I mean, it was that specific. Wow. Um, and we began to see some diversity there. Uh, we built it, it without question. It was not until we uh, began to bring uh, diversity into our leadership mm-hmm. at every level, board level. One of the biggest things was who's on the stage. Uh, if you know, if you come in as a as an African American, and everybody's friendly to you, but the only people you see on stage are white. There's a sense of, okay, so you're you're okay with me coming to your church. But if there's a mix, a diversity on stage, then there's a sense of, oh, this could be my church. Right. It's our church. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so that, I think that was a major change. Uh, and then, of course, we continued to raise up and develop uh, diversity of leadership. To the point that when we transitioned after 21 years, my successor was an African-American. Mm, I love that. And um, so it was a big part of our story. Yeah. And he was on staff with you for some years before that. Yeah, he was uh, He was a, a realtor. And just he and his wife came into the church, and I, I real quickly said, you've got a gift of evangelism that we need. Yeah. Um, and I asked him to come on staff voluntarily initially, to oversee outreach uh, and also celebrate recovery. That was a big part of his story as well. And he just thrived, and we just kept adding him quarter-time, half-time, finally Uh Uh full-time. And he was full-time for probably five years um, before we transitioned out. Yeah, that's awesome. Bishop Linda, what Mm -hmm. about you? What was next for you after seminary? Yeah, so um, when we left here, excuse me, uh, we went back to, actually to my home church, and I was the Christian ed pastor for a couple of years while my husband was working on a master's degree for himself, actually over at Wheaton. Mm-hmm. And then ironically, uh, we moved, after he finished, after he graduated at Wheaton, we moved 20 minutes from Wheaton. <laughs> so I took a church in St. Charles, Illinois, and uh-huh. he was the director of the Olive Branch Mission in downtown Chicago. So that was my first chance to pastor a church, you know, all by myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was a beautiful way that the Lord just opened the door for that. It was a 
smallish church, but I was there four years and uh, we sold our building and bought one that was twice as big or four times as big or something Mm -hmm. and made the transition. And so after four years in St. Charles, um, we came to another transition point. It was just time to be moving on and the Lord opened the door for me to come to the Beeson program. Okay. And um, that, once again, I mean, Keith already said it, it was just an amazing educational opportunity and spiritual opportunity and kind mm-hmm. of a reset for mm-hmm. us. So then when that was over, um, I moved, we moved to um, Rochester, New York, mm-hmm. and I was able to um, be the senior pastor of New Hope Church. And I was there for 10 years from uh, 1998 to 2008. Okay. And that was a, a wonderful experience. Um, and I loved it and didn't have any desire to leave, like I mentioned a few minutes ago. But then the opportunity to become the director of international child care ministries came up, and at first I was pushing away from it, didn't want to mm-hmm. do it, didn't want to leave Rochester, didn't want to, you know, all of that. But the Lord has his ways. You know, when we're committed to be obedient mm-hmm. and to listen for his voice, and we know that already if you ask me to do something, the answer will be yes. Mm-hmm. So, and I have to give my husband credit uh, once again that um, it's not every husband who is willing to make a move for the sake of his wife's job. Mm-hmm. And we moved to Indianapolis. And uh, and then that, w- that just started a, an 11-year ride where I got to do a lot of travel. I visited 40 countries in the world. We had children in 33 countries, and we had sponsors in six or seven countries. Mm-hmm. So that was a wonderful... I got to see... In some ways, I would say the global church at its best. Yeah. The global church pours its life into children and widows and people with special needs. I mean, they mm-hmm. they say, do you read your Bible? Mm-hmm. You know, James says true religion is this. Mm-hmm. This is what we do, you know. And also, it's strategic to invest in children, of course, getting mm-hmm. them educated and then discipling them, blessing them, helping them to grow up into their giftedness. And so it was fun to actually meet leaders around the world who had been sponsored children themselves mm-hmm. through our mm-hmm. organization. But mainly to work with the church and to watch this program go and to work with some amazing people. I had, by the time I finished, I had seven regional coordinators around the world who each had their own responsibilities and just amazing, wonderful people. And uh, so that that was a fulfilling season. And now when I look back on it and realize that now I'm once again where the Lord has called me to be, yes. I, I look back and I say, oh, that was part of my curriculum too. It <laughs> yes. was part of my preparation for the work you want me to do now. Yeah. And so it was valuable in and of itself. It taught me a lot about leadership and it prepared me for what I'm doing now. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you all were elected bishops of the Free Methodist Church in 2019. Is That's that right? right? Mm-hmm. So, and then 2020 happened. And, and <laughs> yes. the world changed. Right. But the mission of God and of the Free Methodist Church that you're a part of, didn't of loving God, loving people, and making disciples, mm-hmm. didn't change. But how has COVID changed the way you all had to lead so new in the job. I think that would be kind of terrifying to be like, I thought it was going to be this and now it's this. Um, How has it changed the way you all led and did ministry? We actually have talked quite a bit. And our other counterpart is Bishop Matt Whitehead. Mm -hmm. So he's located in Seattle. I'm in Michigan, Keeson, Georgia. Mm -hmm. So we're fairly well spread out. And for the first few months before COVID, we were all we all have international responsibilities besides what we're doing in the right, US. And right. So we were doing a lot of travel and barely 
connecting with each other at all mm-hmm. and um, having greater appreciation for our predecessors <laughs> and mm-hmm. how, you know, it's just hard. You feel like the bishops become the bottleneck because you're just too busy mm-hmm. and you don't have the bandwidth and all that. Mm-hmm. But then COVID just grounded us. Yes. So for about 18 months, we basically didn't travel a little bit domestically, but none internationally. And that gave us the opportunity to start really collaborating and working together in a very um, intentional, regular way. So mm-hmm. we started three-hour Zooms every Monday. Mm-hmm. And then why don't you tell about um, our decision to meet with a consultant and start doing some of the deep work that we probably wouldn't have had time to do. Right. Well, there, there was a sense that we, our, our denomination needed more clarity around what makes us distinct. I mean, who yeah. are we? We, mm-hmm. we are a kingdom people. It's one of the things that's most important to us is we want to be a kingdom first people. Mm-hmm. But we really did have this sense of there is something that, I mean, we, our gift to the body of Christ is to be who God called us to be as three Methodists. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of uncertainty about what that means. After 160 years, you, <laughs> you can begin to kind of lose your identity. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it actually happened before COVID. We, we mm-hmm. knew before COVID, this is something we need to be putting some time in. And the, the timing was just, it could not, it was a God thing so clearly because within a month or two of having that conversation, reaching out to a consultant, um, we were completely shut down. Mm-hmm. And so for 18 months, we met with each other. We met with our consultant we dug really deep into the soul of the Free Methodist Church to say, what was our birth story? And what is God saying to us today? I mean, what is, what is he calling us? I mean, certainly building on that, that birth story and yeah, building on our, sure. our origins. But who is he calling us to be today as a church? Um, and so it has been a, a year and a half or two years now of just really clarifying who we are and how we want to go about living out our mission mm-hmm. for this generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did that change things for you? What do you know now that you didn't know 18 months ago? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say um, one, of, one of the main things that came out of it was something that we're calling the Free Methodist Way. Mm-hmm. But it's about five distinctive values that are part of our identity, and we want to be a part of our culture. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which they're a mix of who God called us to be, and then they're aspirational into who we want to be when we're at our best selves. Mm-hmm. We're, it's the trajectory. Mm-hmm. So we started with life-giving holiness because we are actually a holiness denomination, even though that had kind of faded into the background for decades. Mm-hmm. But paired with that and flowing right out of holiness is also love-driven justice. And so the Free Methodist Church was formed in the beginning as an abolitionist denomination and the whole thing about free pews, which doesn't make any sense to us anymore, <laughs> but it was so that the poor could have equal access to worship. Oh, that's so instead of wealthy people having all the good seats and the poor people standing in the back, like that comes right out of the book of James too, doesn't mm-hmm. it? You know? it does. So it was like, we wanted the poor to be welcomed with dignity mm-hmm. and to be participating in all that. So anyway, we have life-giving holiness, not life-sapping definitions of what it means to be holy, by the way. Um, Love-driven justice. Christ-compelled multiplication. Because the other piece is that we've been kind of flatlined. Uh, we, we grew really fast for 30 or 40 years, and then mm-hmm. we kind of settled into someplace comfortable, and 
and plateau or shrank in the United States. Around the world, we've grown amazingly. Yes, isn't that interesting? Yes, like 94% of us are outside the United States. Mm -hmm. So that's where the million, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere close to that if we we only counted the United States. And then the the fourth one is cross-cultural collaboration, because both here in the U.S., and, and especially actually as we experience it with the 100 or so countries that we are participating with around the world, We really want our relationship with them to be a two-way street. There's ways in which we're investing in leadership development all over the world, but we also learn from our partners where, in some cases, they're doing ministry much more effectively than we are. Mm -hmm. For example, the the multiplication. Yeah. Uh, You know, the the church is multiplying rapidly around the globe. Mm -hmm. And we're beginning to say, okay, what can we learn from our brothers and sisters around the world? about how to do that more effectively here. Mm -hmm. And then the last value of the Free Methodist Way is God-given revelation. And some people have thought, well, did you put that there last because it's the least important? And I was like, no, no, no. That's like the mic drop. This is like (laughs) short. It's non-negotiable. We Mm -hmm. are people of the book. Mm -hmm. And so um, as we then began to unpack that and start sharing it in our different conferences, um, there's been a lot of resonance. There's been a lot of buy-in. And in this polarized world that we're living in, and of course that's part of what happened during yes. COVID, it wasn't only just COVID, you know, it was all the political divide and it was uh-huh. issues, the reckoning around race and then the responses to that and issues around masking and social distancing and all the, you know, the church shows signs of being as crazy divided as you could imagine more than ever in our lifetime. Uh-huh. But as we've been helping the church to to believe in this free Methodist way as one integrated whole, mm-hmm. it has helped to pull us toward the middle. We mm-hmm. want to be people of the middle way, as Wesley said, the mm-hmm. both and, yeah. mm-hmm. and not fringed out on either side. That's right. And it's really, I think, um, we just see that it's been God helping us to come to our senses and listen to one another better. Not that we're all the way there, but it's. Um, we hope it's getting down into the soil yep. mm-hmm. of the movement. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. The, the other piece that I would say has been uh, equally important is a shift in, in the way we're thinking about the relationship between the denomination and the local church. Um, in the sense that we, we want to make sure that we understand, those of us who are in leadership, that we exist to equip, empower, and strengthen the local church. Mm-hmm. The local church does not exist to prop up the denomination. Oh, yeah. You know, to, to, to support the denomination. The denomination is here to serve the local church. Mm-hmm. And so we also spent months around the question of what is trying to come to a place of great clarity around the mission, vision, and values of the denomination for the local church. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not replacing the love God, love people, make disciples. Mm-hmm. That's the mission of the church. Right. But what is our? How do we understand our role in equipping, serving, and leading local churches to the, fulfill the gospel? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also, along with the Free Methodist Way, uh, coming to clarity about. Mm-hmm. And for us, what grew out of it was this sense that God is not calling us to build an empire, an institution. We want to see, we want to be a part of igniting 
a spirit-fueled movement Mm -hmm. that catalyzes the multiplication of churches and leaders. And that has become our focus, is how do we do that? How can we help play a role in igniting that kind of movement? Yeah, yeah. you hinted at this earlier, but... What does, you're, and you're talking about it as well. What does it mean to make disciples as we, not just in the U.S., but like learning from the global church, as you talked about, to make disciples? Well, it, uh, one, it is getting back to the way Jesus did it. Um, and I'll just speak very candidly here and transparently from my own experience. I think um, there was a point as a pastor where I believed we were making disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and we were to some degree. I mean, uh, there were people coming out of our, our church that went on the mission field that were clearly living out their faith very openly wherever they were. But I will say, I, I think we were largely counting on a more organic approach to discipleship. Mm-hmm. Well, if people will come and, and listen to the message and apply what they're hearing. And if they'll get involved in a small group, and if they'll find a place to serve, well, discipleship will just happen. Mm -hmm. But Jesus didn't assume that. I mean, Jesus poured his life into a few with the the goal of seeing them do the same thing. That's the multiplication piece. Mm -hmm. And I think what we see around the world is the world is growing so rapidly. The Free Methodist Global Mm-hmm. is growing so rapidly because they're just doing that. I mean, they're really discipling in a personal, one life-to-life, mm-hmm. life-on-a-few uh, kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more effective than this kind of organic, I hope it happens right, approach. Right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm <clears throat> impressed and amazed with what I see in the 17 countries in Latin America that I have something to do with. Um, our area director there is Dr. Ricardo Gomez, oh, yes. who also happens to be uh, affiliated with Asbury and has mm-hmm. his doctorate from here. Um, but there's a wonderful leadership system. There's a vision, and there's a mission, and then there are there's 19 courses where they're developing leaders with online courses, but you can't just take the class. You have to be a part in a mentorship group mm-hmm. in a Wesleyan band for support and ongoing spiritual formation. And so there's an integrated very intentional system, but actually the result of that is that we've had about 700 new churches during the pandemic. Wow. Like during the last couple of years. Yeah. And when we call them churches, many of them would be um, small. We talk about relational discipleship. You know, we're talking about a dozen people yeah. meeting in a house or a courtyard or a city park or wherever, mm-hmm. and um, they're investing deeply in one another's mm-hmm. lives. And so the one another's of the New Testament are part of discipleship, right? Yeah. We are related to each other. We care for each other. And, of course, there have been a lot of losses during COVID. People have lost jobs. Mm-hmm. People have lost loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our own pastors have died. We've had losses along the way. Mm-hmm. But during this really hardship time, there's a, an overwhelming sense of, joy and progress, that God is not done with us yet, that God is going to help us be a um, part of transforming all of Latin America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how big their vision is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's happening in marvelous ways. Yeah. And so I, I, they give me some credit for it, and I really deserve none. I just cheer them on and pray for them and, you know, yeah. check in from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, this has been a really wonderful interview. Um, I have one question I ask everyone. But before I do that, is there anything else you'd like to say that I didn't know to ask or that we haven't talked about yet? I think you've covered 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm, okay. My heart is clear. All right. Yeah. Very good. Very yeah. good. So the one question we ask everyone, because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? My response is uh, going to go straight to something that came out of Asbury indirectly through J.D. Walt and uh, Seedbed. Um, early this year, J.D. talked about the importance of hearing the Word of God, hearing a word from God. And he specifically challenged us uh, through the, the daily text to find uh, a scripture that would be that word. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people, you know, we go into the new year and like, well, my word this year right, is right. mercy or grace or whatever. And he said, no, find a scripture that really is a word that God is speaking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Lord led me to um, Psalm 86. And um, it is such a powerful way. And, and what J.D. really said was, Dig so deep into that scripture, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Dig into it deeply. Pray it uh, continually. And like Linda was talking about, first kind of first thoughts in the morning, last thoughts at night. Mm-hmm. I find myself praying this prayer or praying this psalm um, early in the morning, late at night, and often when I feel distracted. Um, and so this, I've been finding myself just through the, uh, the the memory memorization and deep praying of scripture uh, to be something that is really shaping me right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. I'll give a little plug for the daily text too. <clears throat> I mean, um, to have been grounded for a year and a half goes against my preferred way of being. I, I yes. love people, I love travel, and I had to learn how to be okay with slowing down, <clears throat> settling down. And I needed some routine in my life. And so really the first couple hours of every morning, um, you know, I have my coffee and I'm alone with God. I always listen to the daily text and I have another one, Pray As You Go, that I listen to that I'm a very, um, music finds a way, a pathway into my soul like nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so I have another daily practice that involves music, scripture, Ignatian questions about mm-hmm. the text and then a repeating of the scripture. Just the the routine of that. And it really, I started as soon as I became a bishop and I moved into this house with my husband in Holland, Michigan. And I thought, how on earth am I supposed to do this big ministry from this little house just sitting here every day? <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course, then, of course, there's Zoom and there's all this contact with people. Mm-hmm. But I also needed to... Um, I needed to settle into a pattern of being okay. And the very first few months of it all, uh, the Lord just drew my attention. There's a willow tree out the window in the room where I sit every morning. And Psalm 1 came to my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water mm-hmm. um, that bears fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. And then it says, whatsoever that person does will prosper. And I thought, that tree doesn't even move. <laughs> How's it doing anything that prospers? It's standing right. still. Right. But then it just became a food for my soul. That, mm-hmm. you know what, the Lord's not going to measure my my value and even my productivity by how mm-hmm. frenetic my activity is. It's right. just not necessary. Right. And so I've learned a different rhythm. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, I feel like I'm thriving in that. Yeah. 
I love that. Well, thank you both again yeah. so very much. I really, really enjoyed our thank conversation. You. Yeah, You're a delight to, to talk with. Yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> what a smile. I wish you all could see her smile. <laughs> everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Bishop Linda and Bishop Keith. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed learning more about their journey and hearing about God's faithfulness to them over the years and his vision that he is revealing through them for the church, not just in the U.S., but the global church around the world. If you see them and know them, be sure to tell them thank you so much for being part of today's conversation. As always, you can follow Asbury Seminary in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.